Novel Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're discussing Catherine Called Birdie by Karen Cushman. Hey, Chelsea. Hey, Sarah. Um, we are recording during nap time today, which <laughs> listeners, you might think that that's generally our best work time, but not with these babies. We both no. have babies who prefer <laughs> to nap um, next to a body <laughs> on a soft bed. So we are, we both snuck away to try and fit this in and we're hoping that, um, uh, that they let us do it. So yeah, we'll see. We'll but- see. So I have heard from some of our devoted patrons that they're so excited to talk about Catherine called Birdie. I feel like this is like the surprise hit of the spring season. Um, People have just been loving reading this book and I can see why. It's hilarious. I agree. This is a surprise hit. This wasn't like a favorite of mine growing up. It's not something that like I hear talked about a ton. Of course, the the new movie just came out, et cetera. But um, but now reading it, I'm not surprised that it's such a hit mm-hmm. with our particular listenership. Yeah. <laughs> because it's charming and feminist and classic, but um playful. It just it really it and nerdy, so nerdy. Yeah. It just it really strikes a, the right kind of chord, I think, with this group. I think so too. So Sarah, I think that you should summarize this. And then I have a little bit to share about Karen Cushman's sort of like background and why she chose to write this that I think will be fun to share at the top of the episode um, and might kind of frame our conversation. So tell us what Catherine Called Birdie is all about. All right. So this is Karen Cushman's debut middle grade and award-winning novel. It is set in the 13th century, where young girls are married off at the whims of their fathers, where childbirth is a deadly endeavor, and where our protagonist, Catherine, fights her hardest to hold on to a tomboyish childhood while everyone expects her to grow up and be a lady. Told in the form of Catherine's diary, this fictional account of life in the Middle Ages feels surprisingly relevant History moves forward, people change, and a young girl figures out who she wants to be in spite of society's restrictions. So much happens in this novel, and at the same time, it's very much a coming-of-age story in that classic sense. And just a day-to-day account. It's very much a diary, Mm -hmm. and that's fun to read, too. Did you keep a diary when you were in middle school, Sarah? On and off. I was like one of those kids who really wanted to keep a diary, but Mm -hmm. I've never been like a good, um, I've never been good with those kinds of daily habits. (laughs) So yes and no. How about you? Yeah. I have one journal. I think that maybe I wrote in this from, it was seventh or eighth grade up until like I started high school and tracks about a year. And that's, I still have it. Oh, that's like and, exactly like Catherine. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very similar. And honestly, it's probably like a similar vibe. <laughs> well, okay. So as a reader, this is a little off topic, but 
as someone who read like the Royal Diary series and the Dear America books and Catherine called Birdie and you know, uh, there are lots of epistolary mm-hmm. and novel or um, and diary format books from our youth. Did you struggle to write a diary because you felt like you had to like write performatively? That was something that like I struggled with. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I had like an imagined reader of my diary and then I would yeah. just get tired of trying to live up to that imagined reader's <laughs> expectations. <laughs> <laughs> probably sometimes I feel like I still struggle that with that mm. with journaling yeah um I I think that I read the royal diaries in the dear America more in like fourth and fifth grade mm-hmm. and that was pro- I probably any journal entries that I wrote then were probably very dear diary yes today <laughs> I walked across the playground my feet were sore from the journey <laughs> I was probably trying to mimic a lot but then I think my later, the diary that I have, I think I kind of gave up on that and was just getting a lot of feelings out. <laughs> a lot of teen angst, pre-teen uh-huh. angst. Yes. <laughs> I almost like, I flipped through it and I'm like, wow, my, first of all, my handwriting is great. <laughs> it's not that good anymore because I'm so used to typing now. Yeah. Um, and second, I'm like, I don't know how much of this I can read without just full body cringing. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but I think so. This is our historical theme, um, March month, whatever words hard. Um, I, I feel like there is still a lot of historical middle, middle grade fiction, but we've really lived through, uh, um, I don't know, like I'm trying to think a of the moment. Right it was, it was, it was very big. For us. big. Yes. I mean, American Girl Dolls and the books yes. that went with them. I think that was huge. That was huge. That was probably I uh, I don't know. I I wish I'd gone back and researched more of that and we haven't yet we should have been all along shouted out our friend Allie and her podcast SSR because she has a whole podcast about reading middle grade favorites. Um and I'm sure she has talked about this theme and like why historical fiction was so big when we were kids. I have to think it's largely about American Girl dolls and then those Royal Diary Dear Dear America series came out came out in the late 90s. So I like caught the them at the beginning and then kind of outgrew them as the series continued on, but I loved them. And yeah, then we have some books like this and Karen Cushman wrote several like mm-hmm. very well-regarded historical fiction. So I don't know what was going on. Maybe it's like the turn of the century was the mo- turn of the millennium was upon us. Maybe there was some like backwards gazing happening because of that. I don't know. It's, it's really interesting. Okay. So I want to go into a little bit of background on Karen Cushman, she has a master's degree in human behavior and in museum studies. Um, And she became interested in history while she was teaching a graduate class about material culture. And I think that that background, really knowing that, I'm like, 
that is why Catherine called Birdie feels so tactile. Like the way that she describes everything, she is not just going for the historical events of the time period. She's going for what it felt like to be living in that time. Um, And she's apparently always been interested in the Middle Ages. So in this interview from 1996, this was back in the day, this is after she won the Newbery for this book. She says that she got the idea for Catherine called Birdie after she heard a speech and the speaker said that writers of children's books should always empower the young reader by making the hero of the book the one to solve the problem. Find what's lost, fix what's broken, solve the mystery, make everything right again. And she was like, okay, like that's nice, but that is not real life. And she was like, it doesn't happen that way for me as a grown up, much less for a kid. Like kids are not out here solving their own problems all the time. Um, and so she said, what happens if you can't change the thing? All you can deal with is yourself. And then she thought about how that would be especially true of children in the Middle Ages when they had much less value, much less power. And so she started investigating more. um, And she said in this interview, it seemed to me that time period was almost like that the Middle Ages, the time period was almost like um, adolescence. The Western society was changing from a childhood to a young adulthood with more emphasis on manners and privacy and responsibility. Those ideas were new to that time, just the way they are new ideas for a child growing into adolescence. I never would have come up with that on my own. Like I never would have made that connection. Fascinating. Oh, me neither. Oh, I love that so much. I'm so glad you found that interview. Me too, because this, like, that makes so much sense. And like I said, I never would have made that connection. And I don't think that that's like the thesis of the book. I just think it comes across now that I'm thinking about it. And she just said, the more I researched this time period, the more interested I became. And then I just decided to write some books set in this time period. But that makes so much sense. I'm going to repeat it again because this is like, it's a really big idea for us to emphasize. So, um, The Western society, so in Middle Ages, England, where Bertie is is living, was changing from childhood to young adulthood, more emphasis on manners and privacy and responsibility. They were new at the time, and those are new ideas for a child growing into adolescence. So fascinating. I just, I, okay, because I was surprised when I opened this book back up and realized it was set in 1290. Like I I remembered yeah. it was like obviously I remembered it was historical fiction. Maybe I thought more like renaissance. I I don't know. I I just or maybe I would have even said it's set set in the Middle Ages, but then I seeing the date 1290, I'm like, "Whoa, okay, we're going back." And mm-hmm. thinking about that makes so much sense because it is I mean, it's a totally different setting than if she had said it a couple hundred years in in the future in terms of the types of ideas floating through the ether and the way that this world was um, experiencing culture. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. And so I think another thing that's fascinating with how Karen Cushman wrote this is all of those historical events and that sort of England coming into its adolescence is in the background and it's the backdrop 
But it's not like Catherine is writing her diary and saying like, guess what? The crusades are happening today. (laughs) Or like um, all of a sudden, this group of Jewish travelers shows up at her family's estate. And it's not like she's saying, well, the Jews were expelled from England. (laughs) She's just going about her daily life and history is happening around her. And that's, that's how it happens. I thought how history happens. Yeah. This was such a well done, like diary entry sort of book because, uh, it does not feel like Catherine is writing for an imagined reader (laughs) where she's having to explain Mm -hmm. the larger, like cultural relevance of what's happening around her. Yeah. We see it through her perspective and through the details. I love what you said about the material culture and how Cushman studied that because number one, yes, that's like what, what, especially as a kid, I think you want to know about history. Number two, I, I I feel like I have to credit American girl doll with that again too. Cause like the dolls were fine, but the stuff was what Mm. you wanted, right? Like the historical stuff. (laughs) Um, so I love seeing that come to life in a different way in, in this book. And I, I loved how like some of I, I one diary entry just sticks out to me where she where it was just like sunny. It was just mm-hmm. like clearly she went out <laughs> to play that day instead of writing in her diary because it was sunny. Yeah. And I I we talked about this actually in a bonus episode where we were pairing some some books. We talked about how sometimes we can struggle with the epistolary or journal format because it feels so artificial at times. And this did not at all. I I, I think it was so well done and that helps bring the history to life in such a rich way. I was really trying to remember, because I know that I read this as a kid. And for some of these books, when I'm reading them now, I feel like I'm transported back in time and I can just like recognize passages and it just feels like they light something up in my brain. I did listen to the audiobook of this, so maybe that was why I didn't have that exact experience. But I was trying to remember like what, about this as a kid would have been super compelling to me because those Royal Diaries and Dear America books were very plotty. So they like the characters were really struggling with a problem or like the, in the Royal Diaries, like those historical characters were dealing with like these really scary political schemes and things like that. And this, it's not particularly plotty like some things happen um and so I was just trying to think of like what compelled me to keep reading and I don't know if it was just loving being wrapped up in the historical time period or Catherine's voice because certainly as an adult it was Catherine's voice I'm like picked off 29 fleas today (laughs) and just like her very dry sense of humor um and as a kid I'm like man was I just really into reading about people never taking a bath? Like, <laughs> yeah, I, it's gross. It's a gross time period. It is. And she does not shy away from, from that. I, when the bathtub is turned over for, as an extra table, she's like, well, I guess I'll take a bath in the springtime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I can't remember either, Chelsea. I was hoping that you, you could, but I, I remember the cover very mm-hmm. vividly because the old cover I I really like now, but I think was not interesting weird. to me and weird as a kid. I probably wanted to know if Catherine 
was going to end up married. I probably thought she was going to end up married to like, you know, somebody amazing or that she was going to be able to, you know, sneak into the monastery or, you know, live out some, some fantasy. And so that's probably part, partly why I kept reading was both like, you know, needing to know what happened to her and my expectation based on so many other books that it would be something big. Um, and maybe, maybe the book didn't stick with me as much because it defied those expectations, which is one of the reasons I think it's a great book. Um, it's interesting. I would love to hear from more readers who know that they read this as a kid and loved it because I, I don't, I just, I loved it as an adult, but it's hard to kind of imagine what, you, how, exactly what you said, like what kept you reading? What what grabs a kid about this? Like as a school librarian, what makes you think, yes, I'm going to hand this book to this kid? Yeah. Maybe they're just pouring through all the historical fiction mm-hmm. and that's it. Um, but yeah. I don't, I don't know. I I think we definitely should talk about the ending in a little bit. I was reading a little bit about the movie adaptation, which I think was fabulous. Have you watched it yet, Sarah? No, I want to, but I, I haven't watched it. Maybe we'll have to do a watch along. Um, <gasps> we didn't put that on the calendar, but maybe we'll have to do that because I think our crew would be really interested. Um, I did watch it be prior to rereading this book. So like a few months ago when it came out. It was really good. It's one of the better book to movie adaptations I've seen. And that's what the reviews say too. Mm. Um, Because things are changed to modernize it a little bit. So we'll talk a little bit about that. But another thing I found interesting in reading about this movie is Lena Dunham is one of those avid readers who read this book and was so obsessed with it that she like reread it all the time as a kid knew that she wanted to make it into a movie, was like waiting for the right moment. And I'm not a huge fan of her as a person, um, but I, I, she did this really well. And if she keeps adapting just like YA books, <laughs> great. I'm Orky all for it. YA books, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This was what she was supposed to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I'm excited to watch it. And I just, I... I don't know, just having this conversation, thinking about it in relation to Lena Dunham. Maybe that is the thing about this book is it's actually really quirky. Yeah. It's it's odd. Her voice is hilarious and witty. There is this juxtaposition of really hard topics and this really not light effervescent voice, but but snarky, sardonic voice that is, I think, both something that kids can fall in love with, but also maybe unusual in um, in middle grade fiction. This isn't like a particularly earnest book, which I think earnest is a term I would use to describe a lot of middle grade fiction. And so it, it just, it feels odd um, in a fantastic way. But but yeah, it does, it, I wonder, I, I do wonder more about like the kids who really fall in love with this book. Um, and it, again, it defies the expected narrative arc, um, of a coming of age story or, or even of like a historical fiction. Cause even those like dear America and Royal diaries, when things ended badly, it was like, 
still this, I, I don't know, rising action. And it's just an odd, <laughs> charming book. It is. Let's talk about Catherine a little bit more. She's We've talked about her voice. She's super funny. Um, I think it's interesting to see her relationship with her parents and with her siblings and how some of it feels really true to life. Like she is a lot closer to one brother than to some others. Um, she has a favorite uncle. Um, she kind of favors one parent over another. And I think a lot of kids can relate to that. Like at certain points in your life, you're closer to one parent and it kind of flip flops depending on your developmental stage. But I think for a lot of girls, um, they either like really lean into that relationship with their mom at this point, or it can be like a really contentious and like fraught relationship. Um, for Catherine, her dad, (laughs) he is just like this drunk blowhard, like doesn't seem like a great guy. Um, and you know, her, I think it's really interesting looking through her eyes at her parents' relationship because her mom still seems to really love him. Her mom keeps getting pregnant. So yeah, that's like I, dangerous. I, I know. I've like, I felt like more darkness there. I was like, is her father like forcing this, like the sexual relationship to continue? Because he also was, would beat Catherine. And I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think that was like pretty, pretty common then just like expected. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it would all, I, I think it would also be expected for like a wife not to have the option to say, say no mm-hmm. in a relationship. So I, I read that as like very dark. Um, especially when Catherine was talking about all of her mother's miscarriages and how she really, you know, wished that God would stop having her mom get pregnant if it wasn't going to come to fruition. I also, I think one of the things that fascinated me reading it now in regards to all of this is like how much, how shrunken the generations are in this world, right? Because Catherine's mom got married at 15. Catherine is 13. Um, she's the youngest. So her, her mom is probably like 35. She's her mom's really younger than I am. Still <laughs> childbearing yeah. age. Yes, exactly. And so Catherine is about to go become a wife, but it's not like like her mom is still, you know, in like middle marriage. <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. it, so she and her mom are potentially going to be in like the same kind of position generationally and in life as each other at the same time. It's just kind of the the squashing of generations to being more like 15 years apart mm-hmm. um, is so interesting to think about. Like, how do you relate to your mom knowing you're about to like, you're a kid, but also you could be a mom in a year. Like, is it just fascinating? Yeah. The life expectancy back then. Yeah. Was trash. Mm-hmm. Was, and I think, um, I don't remember if this was in part of the book where it was kind of like, well, this one's young enough. Then if I get married to another woman and she dies, like it was that, that's why a lot of these older men married 15 year old 
girls, essentially, mm-hmm. yeah. um, because a lot of them died in childbirth. Mm-hmm. And then you could just keep grabbing another one. Mm-hmm. Um, they were they were not um, treated as full people. No. And I, I love that Catherine is such a full person. I mean, of course, I wouldn't expect anything less from a you know modern writer looking back. But it is this really kind of wonderful depiction of her vibrancy and humanity in all its forms within this culture that doesn't view her as such. Even like her mom who really loves her, like really just kind of wants her to tamp things down and do what she needs to do. And um, I, I, I really enjoyed that. And her writing is a little bit of a rebellion because mm-hmm. she gets to either write a diary or she has to learn embroidery. And she's like, well, I would rather write a diary, which is very much more of a male centric activity to be writing, to be reading um, at that time. And I love that. But I'm curious, Sarah, if there was something about her medieval girlhood experience that translated well to contemporary girlhood for you. Or if it all felt very like more Middle Ages. I mean, it, it did feel authentic to the time. But I, I think that still a lot of middle grade and young adult fiction, even adult fiction that's about being a young woman, is centered on this question of is the character's life going to get narrower and narrower and funneled into quote unquote, just being a wife and mother, or is her world going to get to remain expansive in terms of her interests, her passions, her job, et cetera. And like that, that question of can, can women have both is still like a foundational question in so much fiction about women and girls. So I think in that sense, it felt still really modern. It was just kind of brought down into like, I don't think, I don't think many 13 year olds like think about that in a pressing manner in today's Mm. world. But I think it's still a, a um, question or just something that I think many women and girls will still have to wrestle with at some point in their lives. And certainly still wrestled with in art. I think that, you know, granted 12 or 13 year old girls today are not um, suddenly going from childhood to marriage, but at least in our, I should, I feel like in our privileged culture. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, but there is this transition from, I think, like childhood to young adulthood or girlhood to young womanhood that can feel really precarious. And I think if you are a middle school teacher, you might really notice this where it's like the girls act like kids one day and they act like young women the next where it's like you are figuring out as a girl, you're encouraged more to be like loud and boisterous and play. And then all of a sudden I'm just thinking even like playing recess games. I remember there was a certain point in middle school where my friends and I, like, I would have still loved to go. There was like this wooded area on our 
school property, I still would have loved to like go and play in the woods and walk around in nature and like make up pretend games with my friends. But everyone was ready to go play basketball with the boys. And that's what you did at recess. And so I just remember that being like this transition from like childhood games to like, oh, we're adolescents now. Like this is what we do now. This is the expected activity. And I do think that myself and my friends, because we were the dorky, (laughs) the quirky girls, and we were totally comfortable with being the smart girls, not the like stylish ones, um, that we got to hang on to our childhoods a little bit longer. But I, I find that transition actually to be kind of sad. And I don't know if I felt sad at the time. I think it's where a lot of that like preteen angst comes from. Um, but looking back on it, I'm like, that's a really hard time to go through. It is. Yeah. I, I think that that is one thing that's been coming up for me a lot in reading all of these books and and any additional kind of YA that I've picked up recently is just, it is really hard to be a preteen and teen girl. I'm sure it's really hard to be a preteen and teen boy too, but just of the books that I've read, it's focused more on girls and I have a little girl. So <laughs> that's mm-hmm. kind of where my mind goes. I, I yeah, I, I think that that, um, it's a, like you said, it's a less clear delineation. It's more about like peers and that kind of, um, those pressures and expectations than it is about your parents saying, well, now it's time for you to get married, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but it still is that, that shift, that letting go of, you know, getting to play with the goat boy, um, or imagining that you could just dress up like a boy and, and go to school or go, you know, study at the monastery, no one would even know the difference. Like having to let go of those options and, or those fantasies and dreams and that narrowing of what you feel like is expected from you is very real still. Well, and her brothers and her dad, even, they do still get to play. Mm -hmm. They get to act like children. Mm-hmm. So they're like starting brawls and wrestling. And I find that to be, you know, sort of true for, for boys and girls in, in the like heteronormative <laughs> kind of world. Um, we're talking here with like cisgendered boys and girls. We do know that girls do like develop a little bit faster than boys. They mature a little bit faster, but also socially boys are socialized that they can be childish for longer. They can be boyish for longer. Girls start developing and the sort of like restrictions and the manners and cross your legs when you're wearing a skirt and like, you know, all of these things that we tell girls or like expect them to be a little bit quieter. Um, When Curtis and I were on our trip, we went to this ice cream place and I think that maybe it was, there were these two young girls, they got these huge ice cream cones and they were so excited. And of course they were going to get all sugared up. And there was a, a young woman and a man with them. And I think that they were maybe like their aunt and uncle or babysitter or something. It wasn't a, a parent relationship. And they, these girls were just giggling giggling their heads off. And I found it to be really sweet and joyful. And the guy was like, don't, don't laugh so loud. Like there are people here. And the, um, woman turned to him and, um, 
she was like, they can laugh as loud as they want to. And she turned to the girls and they were like, she was like, keep laughing. Um, and they did. And I, obviously I was just totally eavesdropping on this moment, but it hit me enough for me to remember it. And it really stuck with me. And I was like, yes, girls laugh as loud as you want to. Um, and that just, yeah, because girls are are told to be quieter or like just the the socialization around um, these gender roles. It, there's there's a shrinking that comes with young womanhood. Yes, I think that's a really good way to say it, a shrinking or a narrowing. And did you, I feel like we're going a little off topic, but this is all so interesting to me and very much connected to the book. Did you listen to the Ezra Klein episode about the boys and the men are not all right? Which mm-hmm. I I highly recommend that episode. I thought it was really interesting. And I I I think that you know this the the episode was about boys. It was not about girls, and that is totally mm-hmm. fine. But it was fascinating to me to think about how, you know, he was talking so much about how girls are now more successful in college and career to a certain extent, caveats, et cetera. But because boys are not like, don't have the organizational skills that girls do, et cetera. And it's just, it's so interesting because I, I, I don't disagree with that. And, but I also think like, yeah, because girls are like expected to, and boys mm-hmm. are like kind of let off the hook in some of those, so some of those ways. And so I I mean, and you see that even like in this book that's what 30 years old, um, and about the middle ages, that same level of expectation around girlhood and womanhood, which is especially interesting in this historical fiction moment, because it's like girls weren't thought of as full people, but the expectations on them are so high. Mm -hmm. Mm, That's a really good way to put it. Yeah. I don't have much to say except that I do hope everyone goes and listens to that episode because it was fascinating. It sparked um, a really good conversation um, between Curtis and me about um, just like how he hopes to project um, manhood. One of the really interesting, this is slightly off topic, but I can't help it. It was just so good. But one of the really interesting things that was brought up in that episode was that there are pretty clear parameters around what it means to be a woman. Um, but boys and men don't necessarily have that today because it's changing. Um, and because, you know, things that might've been considered like the ultimate manliness decades ago are, um, discouraged or we know are toxic right now. And so part of their conversation was like, well, we need sort of a definition of manhood. And if we don't provide one, then people like Andrew Tate or, um, I don't know what's his butt who has a Jordan podcast Peterson. are going to yeah. yeah are going to define it mm-hmm. for young boys mm-hmm. and so yeah Curtis and I started having the conversation of like well what do you I was like Curtis what do you <laughs> want to project as manhood it fascinating it's Just fascinating, fascinating because I I I think that that is so true at the same time I feel like and what 
like books like this are chafing against is the overly narrow definition of what mm. womanhood is. And so like I I so like I I think both things are true is what I'm saying. Like if you have no sense then like that's overwhelming. But if the if the pathway is so narrow, then that is it's claustrophobic. And so I, I and I think that, you know, for for kids, cisgender kids and trans kids and just every every kid, like seeing a variety of ways of being and books like this where she really is, Catherine really is, you know. With, without these like long diatribes questioning like why she has to live a different way. Um, <laughs> I mean, even like small hilarious things where she's like, one thing I wonder is why men get old and bald and women just get old. Yeah. <laughs> just like, oh, like, there's just so much humor and play within the confines that she's butting up against. And I don't know, the more we talk about Chelsea, the more I really like this book. And I'm excited to read it with Lou one day. I know. And I mean, I think that with the Ezra Klein episode and with reading this book and the way that we grew up, we're still, the way we're talking about this book, the way that we're thinking about it is still such like gender binary thinking. Mm -hmm. And our kids might be rejecting that entirely. Yeah. Um, I think that we're going to see a lot of changes over the years. And I'm curious to see how that's going to be reflected in middle grade. And a lot of these middle grade classics that do deal with young adulthood and um, though they might be considered feminist, do really grapple with this gender binary. I'm curious to see how middle grade expands Um, and just, yeah, seeing kids explore their identity is going to be lovely. So, um, Okay, Sarah, before we get to pairings, I want to talk a little bit about the ending. Um, So this is a little, this is going to be a little spoilery, um, but the the movie ending is different from the book ending. Um, And so I want to just like get your take on the book ending before we possibly watch the movie with Classics Club altogether. All right. Well, if you don't want the book or movie spoiled for you, you can check our show notes and we will have the pairings time stamped and you can jump ahead there. Do that now. I, I mean, I really liked the ending as an adult. Again, I think I probably hated it as a kid. <laughs> um, but I think it's really smart what she did. Shaggy Beard dies in a brawl, speaking of masculinity. <laughs> and so she just gets passed off to his son because that's what would happened. What would happen? And she, we don't meet him. We don't, I think his name is Steven. We don't meet him. We don't see him on the page. And so I think it's a really, again, smart ending because it would go against what seems to be her real goal of being very authentic to to the time if Catherine's parents were just like, okay, you don't have to get married. What would you like to do with your life, Catherine? Um, but it, it it's better than marrying old Shaggy Beard. 
And because we don't see Steven, we get to like hope that he's awesome and that they have this amazing relationship. But maybe for adults, we get to kind of think like, oh, this is it's probably sad. Like it probably, you know, it it is still that closing of of a door for her. And she has these high hopes now. And what's it really going to be like? So I just think it's a really kind of cleverly done where it can be that hopeful ending that a kid might want to need, but still very realistic. What did you think? I agree. It, it just feels, feels like the right ending. The movie ending is changed. And I also like that the entire movie, the relationship between Catherine and her father is different. Um, there's a much more loving family relationship that we get to see. And I think I probably projected that onto my reading of the book since I had seen the movie a couple months prior. And it's really lovely. Um, still pretty realistic, but it's, it's nice. Um, it's more, um, earnest as you were saying and endearing and it, the movie is much more feels like modern middle grade. And so I don't want to spoil the ending. I think it still offers like an open-ended, there are some realistic possibilities that could happen here, but it's a more triumphant ending. It's a movie ending which I think is great. I think if you're going to put it on the screen, that this book ending would have been pretty unsatisfying. Oh, totally. Um, so the I think the script um, was adapted properly and the the ending is really fun. So um, I think I've, I've convinced myself, I don't know about you, that we need to do a watch along <laughs> because I think it'd be really fun to talk with everyone while we watch. Oh, I would love to. I think, I think we should do it for sure. Maybe we'll find some sometime in April for that. Yeah, that sounds fun. Okay, we're gonna do it. Yeah, these these babies are still napping, so let's see <laughs> let's see what we can do. What would you like to pair with Catherine called Birdie? Okay, my first pairing is a wonderful little novella that I really want more people to read called Margaret the First by Danielle Dutton. And I, I love this book. Actually, even the cover is somewhat similar to the old Catherine called Birdie cover. So this is a historical fiction novel based on a real woman named Margaret Cavendish, who lived in 17th century England. So, um, later than Catherine. Um, but she was a writer and philosopher and she, her books were considered like totally, I mean, for lack of a better word, crazy. She was called Mad Madge in some of the like gossip column papers. Um, and, but I just, I love the way Daniel Dutton brings her to life in these pages. I think this is also told in like journal epistolary form. Um, but I should have opened it and looked back through to confirm that. But it is all in her voice, which is much like Catherine's very snarky and funny. Um, she ends up like um, 
exiled in France at some point because of the English Civil War and who her family was sided with um, and trying to like work her way back into to England. Um, but a lot of it is about like her wanting to be a writer and her husband kind of encouraging that and then like to his friends mocking it and that kind of back and forth. Um, it's really awesome. And it is, it's short. It's like 160 pages, gorgeous cover, just a lot of fun and something that um, I think really captures the like that feminist but historical spirit. I loved this book. I think it is one. Of, it's a, just a very different type of historical fiction. Also similar to like Catherine Goldbirdie, it doesn't have that traditional narrative arc, and I think that makes it a good pairing too. So this one is really, really fun. Margaret the First by Danielle Dutton. That sounds. Fabulous. I think you would I, really like it. I think so. It's been on my radar. Like I really like the cover and I always glance at it when I'm at a bookstore. So maybe I'll have to pick it up. So yeah. Yeah. It's good. Uh, I also have a 90s book. Um, so this Ooh. is a 90s book release, but set partly during the Middle Ages. Um, so this is Doomsday Book by Connie Willis. And Connie Willis is an award-winning speculative fiction author. And this book is about time travel. And Sarah, I think that you might be interested in this because it uh, takes place at Oxford. Ooh, I do love that. Yes. And the Oxford scholars, there's like this time travel division. And so certain professors specialize in time travel and their students um, are like apprentices to be time travelers and they like travel in time for academic purposes. So I I really like that scholarly element of this. Um, and the, the book opens and the professor's rushing into the time travel lab and he wants to stop the time travel because his favorite student, Kivrin, is about to travel back to the Middle Ages and she's going to 1320. So it's a little bit later than Catherine, but pretty similar. Um, and she is about to go there and her marker for like when she knows when she's supposed to come back is that she's arriving in the Christmas season. So based on those celebrations, she knows like when she's supposed to go back to the rendezvous point where they're going to get her back to the present. Um, so she's supposed to spend like two weeks in the middle ages doing all this research. There is a little, almost like an epistolary element to this. So it goes back and forth from 2054, which is apparently when we're going to have time travel, <laughs> but we're not going to have cell phones. Was, there were like some weird, very 90s things about this. Um, <laughs> everyone's like, I have to make a phone call. And someone's like, I'll go get you a phone. And then they video call with each other. And I'm like, I don't think that's how that's going to work. Um, but it was, it was fun. And it, like, because it's set in England, just some of those like Britishisms, Britishisms and some of the like, uh, weird futuristic things or it just made it feel like reading a classic. But anyway, um, so 2054 and then 1320 and we're going back and forth. The doctor put a little recording device in Kivrin's hand and made it look like a wrist bone. So when she puts her hands together to pray, she can actually speak into the recording device so that she can like record her findings and bring them back. That's um, clever. Very clever. Um, 
there is a lot of religious history in this book. And so, you know, that was part of Catherine called Birdie where she like says, this is the festival of Saint so-and-so. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really fun. There's a lot of that in here. You get to learn a lot of like the customs. It's very, very immersive, rich historical detail. But here's the part that's going to keep you reading this book. Kivrin is in the Middle Ages. She gets there and she gets sick. It's normal for you to get a little time travel sickness, but it's kind of like motion sickness. You like get over it quickly and get your bearings. But she has a raging fever. She's super sick. And so she has to stay with this family. They like nurse her back to health. Meanwhile, 2054, the uh, time travel technician who's supposed to get the readout of like when and where she landed and make sure that everything was okay. He rushes to the professor at the pub across the street and is like something went wrong. But before he could say what went wrong, he falls sick with a horrible fever. This is a pandemic novel. Oh, man. And so the whole time you're trying to figure out, like, did Kivrin get sick from the present day or did someone in the present, like, how did this illness happen? And there's another plot twist later on that's really, like, will make you gasp. Um, so I think that this would be really fun if you were into Catherine called Birdie, you want more Middle Ages stuff the uh, sort of like religious elements kind of interested you, the daily life stuff interested you. And yeah, it was speculative fiction, but very much like grounded in that real world reality that I tend to like a little bit better. So that is Doomsday Book by Connie Willis. I'm so glad you read that and brought it. That That's a book. It's not like been on my TBR, but I'd, I'd seen it thrown out here and there. It's like a really uh, great speculative fiction title, especially for people who maybe don't always read that genre. So I, I love that you read that. All right, Sarah, last pick. My last pick is Matrix by Lauren Groff, which I just kept thinking about really for this whole book. Did you read this one? Not yet. It's, it's good. Uh, the writing is just really amazing. It's set in the 12th century. And so even a little bit earlier than Catherine called Birdie. And it is about Marie de France, who is a real person who we just have like snippets of her poetry, but we don't really know anything about her. So Lauren Graff reimagines the whole story where Marie is um, best friends with, maybe in love with Eleanor of Aquitaine, and she's exiled from Eleanor's court and she's Marie is like tall and awkward and and gangly and a little bit masculine. And so she it's assumed that no one wants to marry her. And she kind of she's cast aside to this abbey, to this nunnery, where she kind of works her way up and becomes one of really gains a lot of power, both within this abbey and the surrounding community because of what the Abbey represents and who it lets in and who it does not. And so it's just, it's similarly just this very like feminist story with a very feminist main character, um, but really trying to work within the confines of the historical realities that the author has kind of set it in. This book is really um, sensual. There's a lot of like, um, 
not even necessarily romantic elements, but discovering of one's sexuality and sensuality in an, in all manners of, of being. Um, and Marie is just, she's an interesting character because she's almost unknowable in a way, but you really, you, you see many intimate parts of her life at the same time. So this just feels, it's extremely different in tone than Catherine called Birdie. Whereas I'd say Margaret the first is similar in tone to Catherine called Birdie, but it's looking at, of course, a very similar time period and asking kind of really similar questions. But in this, instead of having a character who is married off or who is forced that down that path, we see, well, what does the non-married path look like for a woman at this time? Um, and in this case, it is powerful and triumphant in some ways, but that doesn't mean it is not hard and without many challenges. So I think they'd be a really interesting pairing. And that is Matrix by Lauren Groff. Those are awesome pairings, Sarah. I love it. Um, okay. Cynthia Hand, Brody Ashton, and Jody Meadows write these really fun historical fiction YA series. And one of them is the Janie's series. And so there's one about Lady Jane Grey. There's one about Jane Eyre. There's one about Calamity Jane. And then they also have a Mary series out now. And one of them is about Mary Queen of Scots. The second one is about, um, is it about Mary Wollstonecraft? Um, and then there's one upcoming that is described as Pirates of the Caribbean meets The Little Mermaid. I don't know which Mary that is going to be about, but it sounds fantastic. Um, but anyway, these, while not set in the Middle Ages, I don't think any of, of these books are set in the Middle Ages. They are very similar in tone to Catherine called Birdie. They're really funny and snarky and quirky and sassy and just hilarious. They're excellent on audio. And if you were the reader who loved the American Girl Dolls books, who loved the Royal Diaries and the Dear America series, I think that even as an adult, these YA books would totally scratch that itch. They're so fun. They put a really great spin on history. They're detailed. There's, there's real history there, but they're almost like fan fiction histories. And so they're dramatic and funny and romantic and feminist. And I, I just hope that more people read these. I, I think that I read the first two in the Jane series and I've been meaning to pick up more. Maybe I'll jump over to the Mary series. The Mary Queen of Scots could be a really good one to read. Um, it's set in Renaissance France. So, you know, later than the Middle Ages, but kind of on that uh, journey through European Western history. Uh, and the other thing about these books is there are usually some fantastical elements. So, uh, like in the Lady Jane Grey, um, her betrothed turns into a horse. In Jane Eyre, she can see ghosts. Uh, in this Mary Queen of Scots book, um, Mary is a shapeshifter. So just these are just total fun and entertainment. And I think, Sarah, um, I think that you would like these for your uh, palate cleanser reads. Um, because 
although you have been kind of like not loving the lighthearted books, I think that these books, particularly on audio, because they are on the snarkier side and they're still like dramatic, um, sometimes dark stuff that happens, I think that you would really like these. And I think that they would um, kind of like get to that inner Royal Diaries reader that you still have. So uh, these are the Jane series and the Mary series by Cynthia Hand, Brody Ashton, and Jody Meadows. All right, Classics Club, we're so excited to talk about all of these books with you, and we appreciate you for coming on this children's classics journey with us. If you would like to discuss your favorite children's classics, come on over to our Classics Club on Patreon where we have bonus episodes, we have book club, um, and we just have a bunch of nerdy content for you. In April, we are reading The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. We're reading Anne of Green Gables. That will be our book club book by popular demand. Um, So come on over to us in April to read Anne of Green Gables. And we're also going to read the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler. So Lots of really good stuff coming up. Um, and you can sign up anytime to access our backlog of classes, our bonus episodes, and other nerdy resources at patreon.com slash novel pairings. You can sign up for an annual subscription right away and get a little bit of a discount. And whenever you set up your account, so like say you set it up now at the end of March, you won't be billed until the end of April. So it used to be that you would be billed in March and then you would be billed again April 1st. That is not the case anymore. Whenever you sign up, that will be your day of the month to be billed. And so you won't get that double billing. So you can sign up now if you don't want to forget to sign up in April. You can just go now um, and you won't have to worry about about that. Um, The other spot we want you to head over to is our Substack newsletter. We have almost 1,000 subscribers over on Substack. We are thrilled um, to have so many of you there. And that's where we share a lot of our announcements and calendars and just like bonus links and behind the scenes little things um, and background information on the books that we're reading. So go to novelpairings.substack.com. And of course, follow us at novelpairingspod on Instagram. We are so grateful for all of the reviews that you've written on Apple Podcasts. Those are still super helpful. But what we would love for you to do is send a link to a friend. Um, Choose one of our episodes that you think a friend would like. Our uh, last spring anticipated reads one is good because that's like wide, widely popular. Send them a link to an episode and say, hey, I love this podcast. I would love for you to listen to it. Maybe we could read one of these books together. And that is the best way, just pure word of mouth, original advertising. That's the best way for us to get some new listeners over here. So yeah, just share the podcast with a friend. Thank you to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. Next time, we'll be back to discuss The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book.